invite you to open your Bibles to Zechariah uh, chapter 5. Zechariah is the second to the last book in the Old Testament. We began this series on how God is promising to restore everything that's broken. Uh, we began in the new year, and in March we, we took some time off uh, to talk about the sign of the covenant and to celebrate Holy Week uh, through Palm Sunday and, uh, and, and Easter last Sunday. But we're, we're back in Zechariah. Just to, to reorient us, and if you're new, I um, want to just let you know who Zechariah is. Uh, Zechariah is the longest of what are called the Minor Prophets, a group of, of uh, books near the end of the Old Testament. Zechariah is one of the most frequently quoted Old Testament sources when you get into the New Testament. So he's all over the place in the Gospels in particular, and, uh, and frequently quoted in Revelation. Uh, you, you notice, for instance, on Palm Sunday, the prophecy about, you know, our king is coming gentle and riding on a donkey, that came out of Zechariah 9. So Zechariah is important, and his voice echoes all throughout the, the New Testament. Uh, Zechariah himself lived in about 520 uh, and, and ministered to uh, God's people around 520 BC. And uh, he and, and, and a bunch of uh, the people who were now back in Jerusalem, they were the returning exiles. Uh, under Babylon, Jerusalem had been destroyed, all the people had been deported and were we're now back in Jerusalem as refugees. Uh, the temple had been destroyed. The city had been destroyed. And so, you know, here you have a, a man who ministered, you know, 2,500 uh, years ago or so uh, to a, a, a dilapidated city in ancient Middle East. And, and the question really for us is, does this matter anymore? Are these words relevant to us? And I I hope that you'll find that they are. So we're going to look at the sixth of what are eight initial visions. We're going to look at uh, initially here at the sixth vision, and then uh, later on in the message we'll look at the seventh vision. But please stand in honor of God's Word. I'm going to read verses uh, 1 through 4 in Zechariah chapter 5. The prophet says, Again, I lifted my eyes and saw... And behold, a flying scroll. And he said to me, what do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits and its width 10 cubits. And then he said to me, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side and everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name. And it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones. Father, we pray for your blessing on the reading and the hearing and the receiving of your word to us this morning. Would you show us and re renew in our hearts our, our belief that you are committed to renewing and restoring all things, to indeed getting rid of wickedness entirely, 
Would you show us Jesus and his role in that plan? I ask in his name. Amen. All right, please be seated. One of the one of the most influential books I can remember reading when I, I was a new Christian, um, probably my sophomore year at JMU, and, and somebody had said, hey, you ought to, you ought to read C.S. Lewis. Um, he not only wrote children's books, the Chronicles of Narnia, for instance, and The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. We're going to have a, a really wonderful VBS this summer using that as our theme um, to, to share the gospel uh, with our kids and with uh, the community. But uh, C.S. Lewis wrote, wrote books for children, but he also wrote books for adults, for really, um, uh, really uh, th- thinking, questioning, skeptical adults. And one of those books was called Mere Christianity, based on a series of radio lectures that he gave right around um, you know, the 1940s. So in that book is a chapter that's called Right and Wrong as a Clue, to the meaning of the universe. And C.S. Lewis had become a a Christian later on in his adult life. He was already a a college professor and and so on, and and had an experience of God changing his heart, making him a new creation. And when when he reflects back on his prior skepticism, uh, he, he says that, you know, there's just certain things that we can't not know. Uh, there's certain things that are, that are self-evident that are universally and eternally true, and, and every human being you know, uh, who has the mental faculties to do so is aware of these things. And so he says that there's some things that you just can't not be aware of, like right and wrong. Uh, and he said it was this observation that led him to really re-examine his skepticism and Uh, lead him to faith. So he says that my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. And I can relate to that. I mean, that was a part of my early belief in the the world and the universe is that God had sort of made everything and wound it up like a clockmaker and then just left it running. Uh, So that would A, explain how everything got here, but B, sort of seemed to explain why everything was running amok. Um, And so that was just basic deism. You know, Lewis was thinking about that. Thomas Jefferson held to that, etc. And Lewis says that that was his argument against God, is that just everything seems so cruel and unjust. But, he goes on to say, how had I got the idea of just and unjust? Where Where did that whole concept come from? Justice. A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust, right? And so he goes on to talk about right and wrong, justice and fairness as clues to the meaning of the universe. And there are many clues to the meaning of the universe. And one of the biggest is just that innate sense of justice and fairness, which the prophets, prophets like Zechariah, appeal to over and over and over again to lead us back into a right relationship with God. And your sense of fairness, your sense of justice is there to lead each one of us you know, back into a right relationship with God. So let's look at this, uh, this sixth vision that, that Zechariah is having of a giant 
flying scroll, which I find really fascinating. Um, why doesn't God write his word in the sky? Right? Have you ever heard somebody ask that question? That comes from sort of the skeptic camp. We just, we get impatient. And we want God to just put an end to all the arguing and why do we continue to have, you know, just these ongoing debates about God and faith and what's ultimately true and not true and so on. Why doesn't God just put an end to the whole debate, the whole discussion, and write his word across the sky? Well, in a sense, he did. And he did it with Zechariah. And Zechariah has this vision of an enormous flying scroll. It's 30 cubits. Um, by, um, what is it? No, it's not. 30 feet. 30 feet by 15 feet. It's 20 cubits by 10 cubits. A cubit's a foot and a half. Um, this stage here is, before you get to the where, where it bevels, um, the, the front part of the stage is about 30 feet long. So if you can imagine a, a scroll that long and 15 feet high wouldn't quite reach uh, the peak of the ceiling, but that's a big scroll, people. Uh, nobody had ever seen a scroll that big. Uh, Zechariah's audience would be hearing the description of a scroll that size and just be going, huh, what? There's no parchment. There's no vellum that, that big. Where, what are you looking at, Zechariah? And furthermore, it's, I mean, if, if, that, if its size alone wasn't enough to convince you that it's, this is sort of supernatural, the scroll is flying. Clue, that's a hint. This is unusual, and it's divine, and it's supernatural. So uh, the truth is that God does write his word in the sky, and he writes it in our hearts. And the Psalms talk about it uh, in terms of the, the heavens declaring uh, his glory. Uh, the, Paul talks about our conscience bearing witness. There are just certain things that we know that are true, and it's actually what you know, God has put uh, in our heart, in, the, in creation for us to see and, and to, to understand. This is special, though, because it's a scroll. And it's a picture of God's supernatural, direct revelation. Uh, but it's, it's affirming something that we all still know to be true um, and, and confirming this sense of justice. We all know that there are some things that are right and there are some things that are wrong. And we all live in a world that assumes this to be the case. Because we all believe that fundamentally uh, doing what is right should be rewarded and doing what is wrong should be punished. There should be consequences if, if you do what's wrong. That's why even early on, we just don't have to teach our kids what's fair or not. They know that if your brother or your sister gets an ice cream cone, you should get one too. And if you don't, what's up? Everybody knows that's unfair. So when justice is sabotaged, we appeal to this universally recognized sense of fairness. And we, we know that everybody ought to know that. So nobody can plead ignorance to justice. Uh, Joyce Baldwin, she's a commentator on Zechariah. She writes that nobody could plead ignorance for the scroll was large enough for all to see and none could escape its judgment. So, you know, they're all some things that are right and some things that are wrong. And to put this in the language of the prophets, there are some things that are righteous and there are some things that are wicked. Same categories, just different kinds of, of language. 
And in the Proverbs, uh, we read things like this, the Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. So these are biblical terms, uh, they're covenantal terms, but they mean the same thing today that they did back then. You know, the, this is the distinction between what is good and right and fair and true and what is evil and wrong and, and wicked and unrighteous. So, you know, we want and we expect the universe to operate under this principle of, you know, a curse is what should come in the face of wickedness and blessing should come in the face of righteousness. And when that doesn't happen, we balk. We act and affirm and echo Job, who, if you know his story, was this, uh, you know, his whole community recognized him as an incredibly upright man. Even God, you know, would say, hey, have you considered my servant Job? Good guy. And yet, the sky fell on him. And instead of being rewarded for all of his goodness, it just seemed like God's curse was on him. And Job says, look, what is going on? Why do the wicked still live, reach old age, and grow mighty in power? Look at me, I've tried to keep a blameless life and you know, all hell's breaking loose. That's what we appeal to, right? That's that sense of fairness. That's that innate sense that, you know what? The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Um, wickedness is weird, though. Uh, it's not something that gets a lot of airtime. If it does, uh, when we think about wickedness in our contemporary culture, it almost seems fictitious. Uh, we reserve you know, the category of wickedness for uh, an arch villain, whether it's DC or Marvel or whatever, uh, we reserve it uh, for Sith Lords, like you know, Darth Bad Guy, whoever the new, the new you know, Sith Lord is. Um, we reserve it for he who must not be named, uh, Moldy Wart. Uh, whoever that guy is. And they, these are the kinds of people that we go, okay, that's wicked, and we can call them wicked, but isn't wickedness old-fashioned and outdated? I mean, aren't, don't we live in a more sophisticated culture that there's bad, you know, there's people that do bad things, but wickedness, what is that about? Well, let's, let's, let's bring this into real time uh, because you see this picture of this scroll and this curse and this, um, word coming in verse 4 that, that the curse will enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name and it shall return, it shall remain in his house and consume it, uh, both timber and stone. So this is real-time wickedness. God's design for the world is that it would be like a flourishing garden of, of righteousness and goodness, and instead it, it ends up being like a polluted slum with houses full of people who steal or people who lie. This is where wickedness gets traction, and we go, okay, this isn't fiction. This happens to all of us. Every one of you have been affected by somebody who's stolen from you, somebody who's lied to you. I remember um, my golf clubs got stolen out of the back of my Volvo a couple of years back. It's like, who does that? I mean, 
they were crappy clubs to begin with. I mean, it was like, what in the world? Why do you want my awful golf clubs? And now I don't have, you know, anyway, I can whine about it some more. Thankfully, uh, it was all well because I only play golf about once a year. Um, so you've all experienced something like that. Nobody's immune to somebody taking something that doesn't belong to them, in fact, belongs to you, or being lied to. Aren't you tired of being lied to? Can we just call it what it is? I'm tired of politicians lying to us. Can't somebody just tell the truth? Somebody? Why do we live in a slum of society where people steal and lie and it's considered normal? But God says it's wickedness. And his curse is going to consume the houses of those who, you know, steal and who lie and, and, and so on. So this land that, that Zechariah is living in, God's land, is not supposed to contain these kinds of houses. It's supposed to be inhabited uh, by the people of God, the, the people who belong to God, the people aligned with God, who, have, who live in houses full of goodness and truth. That's, that's what the land's supposed to be full of, not houses full of you know, thieves and, and, and liars. Uh, God had promised earlier in Zechariah chapter 1 that I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy and my house shall be built in it, declares the Lord, which is you know, okay, now you've got a, a, a concern because God is saying my house is going to be in this land and yet there's all these other houses here that are unrighteous. God's house is righteous. His is holy. How can he dwell among the wicked? How can, how can that happen? God says his curse is going to consume those houses. That's what's going to happen. And God is no ally to evil. He is opposed to it. He does not befriend it. He does not cozy up to it. His plan is to one day rid the world entirely of evil and restore creation to a place that's good and beautiful and pure and holy again. There won't be any more stealing. There won't be any more lying. And, uh, and this, is, this is God's plan. Um, I want to look now at the, eighth vi- uh, the, sorry, the seventh vision. Uh, it's in your bulletin or you can read along in your Bibles if you've got them open in verse 5. So here's the first half of the seventh vision that has, it's, it's a, has a, a continuation from the sixth vision. The angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, lift your eyes and see this that is going out. And I said, what is it? And he said, this is the basket that is going out. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted and there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. Uh, Let me pause there. Let's talk about the woman in the basket. Um, This basket is uh, a special basket. uh, Other translations will read barrel or other translations just have the word ephah, an Old Testament measurement uh, for volume. An ephah measured about five gallons of grain. Uh, so they would use a basket to scoop out five gallons of grain, and, and that would be very typical to see at a market, you know, at the farmer's market or something of, of, of the, uh, the equivalent. So uh, the basket being five gallons, you wonder, okay, there's a woman in the basket, a very tiny lady. <laughs> How does this woman fit in a five-gallon, you know, container? Uh, we don't, we don't know. Don't, you don't have to get hung up on the literalness of this. It's a vision. 
It's possible the ephah had been enlarged like the scroll was, or it's just symbolic. And then you kind of go, all right, now wait a minute. Why is a woman being sort of picked on as the symbol of wickedness? Is the Bible misogynist or something like that? Well, don't get upset because you're about to see how a vision of, of holiness and goodness are two women with wings, and, and they're, they're fascinating. But uh, th- this happens from time to time. For instance, other places in the Old Testament, uh, uh, the adulteress, you know, this woman, she is the personification of wickedness. It's not misogyny because you also see the symbol of faithfulness, being the bride of Christ and so on. So just, just roll with... Uh, Roll with the illustration here. This, this ephah, again, being a unit of commerce, something that people used in business and for trade, uh, one way to take advantage of your customers to skim a little off the top was to pretend like, yeah, your basket weighs out or, or measures out five gallons of grain, but in fact, it only measures out about four and a half gallons. So one way to take advantage of your customers is to shrink your ephah, and pretend like it's legit. Um, So when you take the sixth vision and the seventh vision and combine them together, where you've got the houses of those who steal, the houses of those who swear falsely, and now you've got these who are, you know, having, using the ephah um, in an inappropriate way, what do stealing and lying and false weights all have in common? These are all strategies to take advantage of the poor and the needy. And the prophets railed against this kind of injustice. You listen to Amos chapter 8. He says, hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, well, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale? Like, when can we get our religious duties over with so we can get on to making money? that we may make the ephah small and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Shall not the land tremble on this account and everyone mourn who dwells in it? Yes, it should. The land should tremble on this account. The land is supposed to be a place of goodness and love and holiness, a place where the needy aren't taken advantage of, but instead they're protected. And instead the land has become a slum where there are houses of thieves and houses of liars and houses of people who cheat. And God says that this is the basket that's going out. This is their iniquity in all the land. This is the same land that God says is my land. It's supposed to be holy. Back in chapter 2, the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the holy land and will again choose Jerusalem. So how is God going to rid the land of wickedness? Look in verse 4. And it shall remain, the curse shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stone. So God is warning um, his people back then, he still warns us today, that if we don't turn from wickedness, the biblical word, or just you know, 
you can use good old words like cheating and stealing and lying and things like that. If we don't turn from these things, the curse will consume us. How? Well, because it's true that every human being will become like whatever we worship. There's this principle in life um, that whatever you admire, whatever you aspire to, that's going to control you. That's going to start to shape you and to define you. So our idols will end up devouring us, but Jesus develops us. And our idols will consume us, but Jesus will consummate us. The Psalms talk about this. Psalm 115 says that their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. Those who make them become like them. And so do all who trust in them. This makes sense if you, if you just flesh it out. If you worship money, guess what? If, if, you, if money is at the center of your life, you're going to be consumed by it. Because what's going to end up happening is that every relationship, every moment, every hobby ends up being just another financial transaction. If money's your God, everything is seen through the grid of currency. This Will this person who I'm interacting with help or hurt my bottom line? Will this activity be good for business or bad for business? And people and time and events are just end up, they just all become currency to you. So um, Tim Keller wrote this book, Encounters with Jesus. This is our, our gift book, by the way, to folks who are our guests this month. Uh, they get the gift bag and, and a copy of this book. Keller quotes an author, a, a non-Christian author. I don't even know if he's, I don't even know if he believes in God, but he had a really remarkable observation uh, that, that Keller quotes here. Uh, this is an author named David Wallace who was giving a commencement address, and he was telling these uh, college graduates that everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship, and the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God to worship is that pretty much Anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, and if they are where uh, you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough and never feel like you have enough. And if it's truth, uh, uh, <laughs> sorry, it's the truth. And if you worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, then you will always feel ugly. And if you worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will feel the need ever more to have power over others to numb you to your own fear. If you worship your intellect, if you worship being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, and always on the verge of being found out. Look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they are evil or sinful. It is that they're unconscious. They're our default setting. We can't help but worship. It's not a question of if we're going to worship, but just what or whom. I like how Greg Beale puts it. What you revere, you resemble either for ruin or restoration. Whatever you worship, you're going to become like that thing. And it's either going to ruin you or it can restore you, depending on what the object of your affection is. So none of us are immune uh, from this. If you're a follower of Jesus, then that means that, yes, 
you have pledged your heart uh, to Jesus. You've made Him the center of your affection and your life, and you're trying to keep your life in circumference around Jesus and with Him as the true center. But none of us does this perfectly because none of us can love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength with all, all the time. Uh, we have moments where we're coming close and then other moments where I'm like, oh, look at this over here. I'd rather have that as the center of my heart for a while. And then I repent and I come back to Jesus. And you do the same thing I do. So all of us are kind of in this pickle where we long for God to deal with the wickedness in the world. And then we realize, wait a minute, the wickedness isn't just out there, it's in here. I lie. I steal, and I cheat. And if God's going to remove the wickedness in this world, what's he going to do with me? So we're stuck. We desperately want God to get rid of wickedness. We want fairness. We want justice. We just don't want God to deal with it in us. We're afraid of that. But the good news is that Jesus removes our wickedness. The rest of the vision, look at the rest of the seventh vision, verse 9. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women coming forward. The wind, or literally the Spirit, um, the, the Spirit of God, was in their wings. They're sent from God. And they had wings like the wings of a stork. And they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. And then I said to the angel who talked with me, where are they taking the basket? And he said, to the land of Shinar, to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. Um, real quick, let me say a couple of things about the rest of the seventh vision. Who are these women? Uh, there's, there are two women, and they're, they're intended to contrast with the woman in the basket. She represents wickedness. These two women represent the Lord, have his spirit in their wings, um, by the way, these wings are enormous. Uh, the wingspan of a stork can be anywhere from 10 to 12 feet. My wingspan is six and a half feet. So imagine, you know, the wingspan much, much larger than this. Uh, vultures have similar big wingspan. Aren't you glad that they're compared to a stork? Instead, I don't know, I just, that thought occurred to me. Uh, and so they're taking this basket with the, the wicked woman in it, and they're, and they're removing it. They are God's agents to remove the wickedness from the land. Where are they taking it? To the land of Shinar. Uh, you know, sometimes the prophets are hard to read because we're unfamiliar with the terms. Shinar, where is that? What is that? Uh, it would take a fifth grader can do this. All you have to do is go to your a Bible dictionary, go to some tool online, say, you know, Shinar, where is Shinar? And you immediately get this cross-reference to Genesis 11. Genesis 11, where the community that God had called to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, to subdue it, they say, no. And they decide to stick together and they want to build a tower. They want to build a temple to their own greatness, the Tower of Babel built on the plains of Shinar in direct defiance of God. This house, this tower becomes the symbol for Babel, the symbol for Babylon, 
Shinar, Babel, Babylon, they're all the same. And in the New Testament, Jesus and the New Testament authors use another word to describe the place, the house for wickedness, and it's called hell. They're all you know, giving us various perspectives on this truth. That God is going to remove wickedness from his land, and it will have a place of its own, as will all who keep their wickedness go to be there. Proverbs 3 says that the Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked. Wickedness has to be removed if the curse is going to be removed. And we, we want this. We want to be free from the curse. We want to be free from frustrations and complications and irritations. And we want to be free from bigotry and abuse and evil. And more than that, we want to be free from pain and sorrow and death. But what do we do with our own wickedness? How is God going to remove the wickedness within us? He sent Jesus. He sent Jesus with the, the Spirit you know, in His wings, so to speak. And He came down from heaven. He lived as a man and He obeyed the law. And then instead of being rewarded for obeying the law, guess what happened to Him? No surprise. What seemed like the biggest tragedy, uh, the, the biggest a sabotage of justice imaginable with this kangaroo court. Everybody knows Jesus is innocent and instead he is sentenced to be crucified. If anybody knows what it feels like to live in an unfair world, it would be the only perfect human being who's ever lived. And when Jesus went to that cross, the light of the world was consumed by our darkness. All of our idolatry, all of our longing for things and stuff and created uh, things instead of the Creator, all of, all of the, the consequence and the curse over that was, fell on Jesus. He took it on Himself so that all who trust in Him, who see Jesus as our substitute, all who put our trust in Jesus, that curse is off of us now. Jesus absorbed it. The curse consumed Jesus. But then as we remember last week, Jesus didn't stay dead. The tomb is empty. And because the tomb is empty, we know that the light in turn then consumed the darkness and that death has been swallowed up in victory so that all who have their faith in Jesus know for a fact that the curse has been removed because we're alive in Christ. We're united to Him and His promise and His protection and His the future that he has uh, established is, is our inheritance because of the work that he's done in our hearts. So if you believe in Jesus as your substitute, he justifies you. He makes it just as if you've never sinned and the curse doesn't stick to you. And then beyond that, he sanctifies us and he makes us more like him. We become conformed to Christ. The you know, when we wonder, hey, how come God doesn't write his word in the sky? You know, yeah, that would be great. But guess what he does do? Is he writes his word in our hearts and he uses us as living billboards, messengers, uh, ambassadors to tell the world this is what it looks like when Jesus changes a life. And prayerfully, the message that you're sending, the message that I'm sending is, is getting more and more true as we continue to follow Jesus. 
So in the places where we're embracing holiness and goodness and love and justice and peace, good. God, God puts those things on display when we live consistently that way. And then for the times when we blow it, and the times when we get out of, out of orbit, when we start longing for things over here and giving in to our idolatries, we come back to our spiritual senses and we repent again. And you know what the world gets to see then? Repentance and faith. Our kids get to see it. Our spouses get to see it. Our parents get to see it. Your coworkers get to see it. They get to see Jesus on display as you repent. As you and I are sorry for the places that we, we slip. And that's how the world gets to see the gospel written. Um, not in the sky, but in our lives. And all of us, all of us have work to do. All of us have places where we're not quite consistent with the kingdom. All of us have areas of wickedness that continue to need to be exposed and, and removed. So let me leave you with that question. What wickedness remains in you? Is it lying? Is it stealing? Is it cheating? Is it, you know, you fill in the gap. None of us are perfect, right? So we all have to continue to try to expose this and work on this. And then maybe you're here and you're going, well, look, I've been trying for years and years and years to deal with my anger or with my lust or my addiction or whatever, and you're just tired. And you've given up. This is, this is just as good as it's going to get. Well, if you think you can't change, I'm going to venture a guess that the reason why you can't change is because you're focused on the wrong thing. When we get focused on our problems, when we get focused on our anger, when we get focused on our lust, when you get focused on your alcoholism or your drug addiction or whatever the case may be, if that's your focus, then no, you're not going to change. That, that particular focus can't change. You know it can change you? Worship. We become conformed to Christ. The more we fall in love with Christ, the closer we get to Christ, the more Christ consumes us the more we become like our object of worship. The more Jesus has our hearts, the more that we will become like Jesus. Uh, Paul tells the Corinthians that the more we behold the glory of the Lord, the glory of God in the face of Christ, then we will be transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. It's progressive, and it keeps on getting better and prayerfully, God bless us, we will continue to show more and more of Jesus to those around us. And if we can focus on Jesus more than we focus on our problems, you and I can change. We can change. Remember, what you revere, you resemble, either for ruin or restoration. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your promise to remove wickedness. Simultaneously, it's our great hope and our deep fear. We pray that you'd give us peace through your Holy Spirit that you have removed our wickedness in Jesus and that you are coming again to completely 
purge the land of everything that is unfair and unjust and unloving. And that an eternity is coming where there will be love and goodness and justice on display forever. Thank you for our inheritance in that because of what Jesus did for us. And I pray for Annie here this morning who uh, are just starting to connect the dots and are just starting to get that picture come, uh, become clear for them. Lord, give them faith and help them to latch on to Jesus as they're the one who removed their curse, and the one who gives them promise, and the one who can change us. And I pray that you would help each and every one of us continue to to long for more of Jesus, to become more like the one that we worship. And Lord, that you would get great glory in our transformed lives. In Jesus' name we pray.